Good morning, everyone. How are you doing? Any high school boys still sore from our water games? Yeah? Awesome. I'm, I'm glad to see this. I thought it was just going to be us old leaders. I was going to be like, oh, you're going to enjoy your youth while it's young. But no, I'm glad. That means we, uh, we're keeping pace with you. I appreciate that. All right, we are going to be in Matthew 27 this morning. We're going to be looking at the first 10 verses, so go ahead and start heading that way in your Bible. I am glad to see how many of y'all are opening up your Bibles. We are a Bible church. That means we teach from it. We have a high view of God and a high view of his scripture. And we want y'all to be having a Bible always. If none of you have a Bible, by all means, please come and talk to us afterwards. We would love to get you a Bible. We'll find some way of getting that into your hands. Well, real quick, let me ask, how many people here like true crime dramas? The podcasts, the YouTube videos, a couple hands, a couple people. It's okay. We all watch trash. We, we, all, watch, uh, we all eat garbage, uh, things that don't really edify our bodies or minds, but we still consume them for some reason. I'm not a fan of it. Uh, you know, YouTube keeps recommending it to me, saying, hey, Matt, you want to watch about this grisly murder? I said, no, I don't. I finally clicked on it one day, and I have to say I was highly disturbed by how well YouTube knows me. And uh, I, I'm addicted to it now, too. I, I hate to admit it, but I am. But, you know, I, I love it. The, the things that really get me are the police interrogation ones, where, you know, they spend three hours of just what they show you grilling this guy using all the different interrogation techniques. And you know it's the guy. Like, they bring him in, you're like, well, it's going to be him. It's, it's, I mean, it's the only guy on the show. This is going to be it. And there's this moment that I love to see, and it's the moment when he knows the jig is up, right? He, he knows that all the will, planned arguments and excuses he had, they've fallen. The police have seen through his lies, and he knows that he's going to be going to jail now. And there's, there's this moment, you can see it when they realize it, and the emotions wash over them. And it's clear that they have remorse, regret, anguish even at this point, but it's not necessarily about the horrendous crimes they've committed, but it's about the judgment that is coming in their future. And the reaction reminds me of the scene we see in Revelation 18, where uh, as the world is brought to an end, as God pours out his wrath on those who rejected him, we see the scene where the people lament and they mourn and they're grieved, and it's not because they are about to face eternal punishment from a righteous and just God. It's because they are grieved that they cannot pursue the lusts of their heart any longer, and they are saddened by that. Well, this morning, we're going to see two examples of people reacting to their sin in two equally wrong ways. So we're going to go ahead and read our passage this morning, and this is Matthew 27, and it's verses 1 through 10. It says, Now when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, What is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed, and he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, It is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury, since it is the price of blood. And they conferred together, and with the money bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, and they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set, 
by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Well, if you're taking notes this morning, and I do highly do so, or recommend you do so, uh, both here and in the main service, then the title for this morning's passage is Judas, Remorseful but Not Repenting. Let me go and turn this on real quick. I think that does, yeah, there we go. Judas, remorseful, but not repenting. And the central theme of these verses is that genuine remorse that leads to repentance should cause us to value the Lamb of God greater than anything this world has to offer. Genuine remorse that leads to repentance should cause us to value the Lamb of God greater than anything this world has to offer. We're going to see this theme play out in four sections, and I'm going to leave this up for a long time. Y'all don't need to worry about writing this down right away super quickly. I'm going to leave this up the whole, whole lesson, guys. Uh, but we're going to see this play out in four scenes that all display a complete lack of repentance. The first scene is going to be that the priests take counsel. That's going to be the first two verses, verses 1 and 2. The second scene is Judas's remorse. And we'll see that in verses 3 through 5. The third scene is the priest's apathy. That's verses 6 through 8. And the fourth scene is God's divine meaning in verses 9 and 10. So let's look again at our first scene, and we're going to read these verses. It's the priests take counsel in verses 1 and 2. God's word reads, Now when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate the governor. So who is in this council? What does the Bible tell us? Yeah, William? Chief and the chief priests and elders. Exactly. This is another name for the Sanhedrin. That's the ruling council of the Jewish nation. And we're told that they're conferring at this point in time because they're trying to figure out how to put Jesus to death. And I, I want you to understand how sick and twisted that sentence is. I want you to do so by flipping over to John 11. We're going to start in verse 47. John 11, 47. You'll turn there by going right in your Bible. It's the last of the Gospels. If you're in Luke, you haven't gone far enough. If you're in Acts, you've gone too far. Come back. Now, as you get there, answer this for me real quick. Did Jesus ever really have a good relationship with the, fri uh, the fries? Wow. The scribes or the Pharisees? Yes or no? No. No. No, he did not. Jesus never had a good relationship with them. From their very first interactions, he always had them mad at him because he would not value at the same level the teachings of men as the teachings of God. But as we come here to John 1147, things have come to a climax. They've come to a head. Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. And this is something that Jesus had already done twice before, but they are way far up north in the upper end of uh, Israel, uh, far away from where the Sanhedrin operated. With Lazarus, not only did Jesus raise him right next door to Jerusalem and Bethany, but he also did it right before the Passover. We're talking about the week, maybe two weeks right before the Passover happens. So you have huge crowds coming in to celebrate, and all of them are hearing this amazing news that a mighty prophet from God has raised someone from the dead something that had only happened from two other people in human history before. That was Elisha and Elijah. And in, 11, in John eleven forty seven, we see how the Sanhedrin responds to this undeniable work of God. 
The Bible tells us, therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council, and they were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take, them, or take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and then that the whole nation uh, perish. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not only for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they plan to kill him. The reason it is so sick and twisted that the Sanhedrin in Matthew 27 is taking counsel to put Jesus to death is because they are not acting in ignorance. And they are not responding because they think Jesus is actually blaspheming God as, as they claimed in Matthew 26, 56. With their own mouths, they have confessed that Jesus is a mighty prophet of God. And that means they should have been listening to the message he brought them which was the message that he was the promised Messiah. But more than the coming of Christ the Messiah, what were they concerned about, according to John 11? Say louder. The Romans? What specifically about the Romans? The Romans are going to do what? They're going to destroy the nation, and they're going to take away their power. More than being concerned about following the Messiah— They were concerned that they would lose their authority in their nation, as if the God who delivered them from Egypt, the God who saw them safely for 40 years through the wilderness, who time and again delivered them from the hand of the oppressor, was so weak that he would not be able to hold them fast. Understand that the reason the Sanhedrin is taking counsel at this point is not because they're looking at the evidence brought against Jesus early Friday morning and trying to decide, well, is this really worthy of death? You know, have we got enough here? They are taking counsel because they're trying to figure out how they can use the false testimonies that they know are false and twist them somehow to get the Romans to give out a death sentence for Jesus. But why do they need the Romans at all? If they wanted Jesus dead, they have him bound in front of him. They've beaten him already was to keep them from taking the beatings just a little bit too far and killing him. Why do they need the Romans involved in this at all? What do you think? It would be against the law for them to kill them, but they can operate in secrecy. They could have done this on their own without anyone knowing. When they came to the Garden of Gethsemane, they could have just killed them. They didn't need the Romans there. Why are they getting the Romans involved in this? What do you all think? I mean, you're right. It would be illegal, but there's something more. That's probably a factor. Yeah. What do you think? They didn't want the killing on their conscience. That's it exactly. They thought if they got the Romans to do it, it didn't matter that they had brought false charges. It didn't matter to them that they had arrested him. It didn't matter that they brought them to the Romans. It didn't matter that they said, crucify, crucify, crucify. It only mattered that the Romans are the ones who gave the verdict to kill him. And in their mind, as long as the Romans were the ones who said, yes, kill him, it meant they were clean. They didn't have any blood on their hands. 
Understand how sick and twisted that is. They knew he was the Messiah, and they said, as long as we don't physically give the order to kill him, we are innocent of killing God's Messiah. It would be as if I took a gun and shot Drew over there and said, you know what? I pulled the trigger. Yes, it was my gun. Yes, but, but, but the bullet is what killed him. My hands are clean. This was, this was the mental gymnastics they were going through. So they take counsel together, and we can see from verse 11, which we're not going to read today, but in verse 11, when we read it on Wednesday, the charge that they bring to Pilate is not blasphemy, which is the charge they convicted him of in last week that Alejandro read, but they charge him with sedition, that is, trying to overthrow the Roman government by saying he was a king. And with this, they decided, or with this decided, they take Jesus to Pilate, and we come to the second scene, which is Judas's remorse in verses 3 to 5. It says, then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that they had been, or saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood, they said, what is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed, and he went away and hanged himself. This section starts off by giving us a sneak peek into Judas's mind. As when he sees that Jesus is condemned by the Sanhedrin, he feels remorse. And you have to wonder, what is it that prompted this remorse? You know, maybe it's just that the reality of the situation caught up with him at that point, and it caused him to feel guilty. Maybe he saw Peter's reaction. He saw Peter's three denials, and he sees Peter running out weeping, and maybe that pricked his own conscience as well. Or maybe Judas never really thought Jesus was going to be condemned. Maybe he thought this whole thing, I'm going to come up with a quick way of making a quick buck. The Pharisees are going to arrest him, they're going to try to charge him. They've done this a thousand times, and each time Jesus gets away. So maybe Judas thought Jesus is going to get away this time too. And when he saw that Jesus was condemned, perhaps that caused him to feel guilty. Regardless, it is at this point, as Jesus is taken to Pilate, that Judas, like Peter, is filled with remorse for what he has done. And Matthew pauses the narrative of Jesus' trials to let us see the end of Judas. And I don't think it's an accident that Matthew puts this aside about Judas right here. Uh, Instead, as with everything in the Bible, I think that this was God's deliberate narrative structure that caused Matthew, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, to put this account immediately following Peter's denial. I want you all to remember that the Gospel of Matthew, this was written probably 60s AD, maybe a little bit later. And the church, though very young at this point, 30-ish years old, they would have no doubt have been well aware of a man named Peter. And they would have also known that he came and repented at some point for denying Jesus three times. By placing Judas' account here, Matthew's getting the reader to contrast Peter's response to remorse to Judas' response to remorse. And now, while Peter didn't betray Jesus in the sense that, you know, he didn't walk up and kiss the face of God and say, to show as a sign that this is the one to rest, 
he did very much betray Jesus. I mean, remember, a betrayal is when you violate someone's trust. It is when you commit treason against someone or violate their allegiance. And yes, Peter absolutely violated his allegiance with Jesus. And I have to wonder, as, if as Peter did this, if he thought about the words in Matthew 10, 33, where Jesus said, whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. I have to imagine Peter did. I mean, Peter loved Jesus, and he hung on the words of Jesus. And at that third denial, I think Jesus brought that to his mind. And he goes out and he weeps bitterly. But after he does that, what else did Peter do? Because he didn't just run out and weep, weep bitterly. What else did Peter do? I know, really open-ended question, Matt. Uh, he, started, he helped found the church. Uh, he healed some people. The more immediate sense, more immediate sense. What, what did he do, Ian? He did. He, re- he repented, yes. Uh, and we know this, in fact, uh, because while none of the Gospels specifically mention Peter at the cross, if you look at Acts 3.15, Peter states that he was a witness to the murder of Christ at the hands of the Jewish leaders. So it's very probable that Peter did come back and from afar see Jesus crucified. And I say from afar because I think if Peter had come up close to Jesus, I don't think he could have kept silent. I mean, think about the Peter that we know from the Gospels. Peter was not a man <laughs> to, to keep his emotions in, in his heart, was he? We, we, we say that, uh, you know, you wear your heart on your sleeve. Peter was a man who wore his heart on his sleeve. You know, when he saw the transfiguration, he was the one who said, hey, it's great that we're here. Let's build some tabernacles. Uh, when Peter saw Jesus walking on the water, he said, Lord, command me to come to you. When Jesus asked, what do people say in, it was Peter who said, you are the Christ, the Son of God. I don't think Peter could have been close to Jesus and not cry out to him. But it does seem, according to Acts, that Peter at least did witness the crucifixion. Contrast that to Judas. He too feels remorse, but that's as far as things go. And I don't mean that he did nothing with the remorse. I mean, we see that remorse caused him to do a physical action. It caused him to go and yell at the priests. It caused him to throw the money back at them. I mean, inwardly in his heart, all that happened was that he had remorse and it stopped there. And I think that if we're honest here today, I mean, we've all felt that kind of remorse at one point or another, where I feel bad about an outcome of my actions, but I do nothing to change the pattern of life that led me to commit that action in the first place, right? Like with my son, I can catch him. He's spinning a yo-yo around, you know, not up and down, just around his head like it's a tornado. And, and, you know, inevitably, a sibling walks too close because the sibling's making some bad choices in life too. And they say, yes, I see this spinning yo-yo of death, but what happens if I get in his space? And of course, the sibling gets whacked upside the head, and there's tears, and there's remorse, and I take care of it. And 10 minutes later, I find that he now has two lightsabers in his hand, and he's spinning around as fast as he can. It's like, come on, what do you think is going to happen? There's remorse, but there's not a change in the heart where you decide that I'm going to make a change to my lifestyle choices so that I'm not coming back to that same sin time and time again. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24 tells us that anyone who is in Christ, 
When we are encountered with an aspect of sin in our lives, we are to lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Remorse about sin, guys? Good. It is good that you feel remorseful about your sin. But if it is to lead to genuine repentance, it can't just be remorse. The Bible tells us that if we are to have genuine repentance, when we feel that remorse, we must put off that pattern of sin that led us to sin. We are to renew our minds through the reading of the scriptures, and we are to put on a new pattern of life that is centered around imitating our perfect and holy God. And I have to ask you, do you think that describes you today? When confronted with your sin, does that cause you anguish? It's so good, but both Peter and Judas felt anguish at their sin. The question is, does that anguish cause you to repent? Does it cause you to renew your mind in God's word and put on the new self, having put off the old self? Or are you like Judas, still dead in your sins and not part of the body of Christ, unwilling to change your life? The passage continues, and we see that after returning the silver, Judas was unfortunately unable to live with his grief. And he chose to commit suicide, hanging himself from a tree branch. Whenever I come to this passage and read about Judas' death, a question always jumps into my mind. It's a complicated question, uh, one that I don't have a really great answer for, but one that I want to work through with y'all anyway. And the question is this, could Judas have repented? I mean, think, think about it for a second. Could Judas have come to a saving faith in Christ? And it is complicated, and it's one that highlights this tension that exists between the absolutely true doctrine of predestination. If you read the Bible, you cannot get around the fact that God has chosen us, those who will come to faith in him, before the world was ever founded. And at the same time, a second equally true doctrine, that Christ died for the sins of not just me, but the whole world. And it's the same kind of tension that exists between the truth that God has put enough evidence about himself just in creation, as Romans 1, 18 through 21 says, to hold people accountable, to make people aware that he exists, not just a general deity, but that the God of the Bible exists. And at the same time, the equally true doctrine that that knowledge of his existence alone won't bring anyone to salvation. It is only by someone going and teaching specifically the gospel that anyone will be saved. That's what Romans 10, 14, and 15 says. It's also the same kind of tension that exists between the true doctrine that God was 100% man on earth and at the same time was 100% God. And I accept these tensions as 100% truth because that's what the Bible says. And I recognize that as 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, right now we see the truth of God, but dimly as in a mirror. One day in heaven, we're going to see God face to face. And we're going to 100% know these wonderful truths about God. And we're going to go, oh, oh, that's what you meant? Okay, well, that makes perfect sense. And that's going to be a wonderful and glorious day. Uh, but right now, we have to do the best we can to understand these, these complex thoughts. 
So could Judas have repented and been saved? Well, from a divine perspective? No. Peter tested this in Acts 1.16, where he says the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. The passages that Peter is quoting from, these are two psalms. They are imprecatory psalms. That is a, a, a psalm that was calling for, Jesus, or for God to pour out his judgment on the nations, not because you wanted to see everyone punished, but because you are recognizing that God is holy and just, and that holy just requires the perfect punishment. And you are calling for God's glory to be displayed through his judgment. And specifically, these are Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. Uh, and the verses that Peter is referencing in Acts to call, call down some very severe curses on the one who portrays the Son of Man. It talks about, you know, make, make it so that he has no children, make it so that no one even knows where he came from, make it so his house is gone. Uh, it is calling down for the complete destruction of the one who portrayed the Son of Man. For these passages to be true, and is there any part of the Bible that's not true? No, it's 100% accurate, guys. Come on, this is a softball question. I know you guys are sleepy, it's Sunday morning, but come on. Is there any part of the Bible that's not true? No, it is all 100% accurate. For these passages to be true, then Judas had to reject Christ fully. At the same time, from a human perspective, could Judas have repented? Absolutely. Christ died for Judas' sins just as much as Christ died for Peter's sins. Christ died so that all might come to him. And this is the tragic truth about Judas, because while he could have repented, Judas displayed here that he had a fundamental misunderstanding about the person and nature of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 27, verse 4, the Bible tells us that Judas's remorse was not because he betrayed the Christ, the promised Messiah, the Lamb of God, but simply because he had betrayed an innocent man. To the end, Judas rejected Jesus as the Christ. And that's something that should make us all sit up and pay attention. Everyone, last one of us here today, Judas sat under the teachings of who for three years? Jesus. Who is who? Who is whom? Say loud. Who is Jesus? He is God. Judas sat under the teachings of God himself for three years, and that alone was not enough to save him. Without a response to that message, it was not enough to save him. If you are here today and you think because you are under sound teaching, you are saved, you are wrong. Being here will not save you. Going on a mission trip like Judas did will not save you. Kissing the face of God himself will not save you. The only thing that can save your soul is confessing Jesus Christ as God, the sovereign Lord over every aspect of your life, and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead after his death to secure my forgiveness. And how do I know that? Like, is this just me, Matthew, going, well, this is, this is what I'm going to teach you. How, how do I know that's true? How do I know that's what you have to do to be saved? It's because it's what the Bible says, guys. Uh, Romans 10, 9, and 10 
tells me this. It says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Judas had remorse, but he never came to repentance. And this brings us to our third section, and that's the priest's apathy. This is in verses 6 through 8. It says, The chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, It is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury, since it is the price of blood. And they conferred together, and with the money bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Now, in contrast to Peter, who had remorse that led to repentance, and in contrast to Judas, who at least felt remorse for his sin, the priests display a complete and utter apathy against their own sin. And apathy is a big way of saying they didn't care at all. They didn't feel good. They didn't feel bad. They felt nothing. They didn't care that they had sinned, and they didn't care that they had directly caused someone else to sin. And we can see this at the end of verse 4. When Judas confesses, he says, I've sinned. What's their response? Look down. Verse 4. What do the priests respond in re- when Judas says he sinned? What do you think, Ian? We said, we don't care. What is that to us? See to it yourself. The very people whose job it was to assist with a sacrificial system, as people came and confessed their sins before God, when Judas comes to them needing spiritual support, their response is, I don't care about this. And let me ask you this. What do you think the priests should have done when Judas came to them? What do you think the priests should have done? Any guesses? What do you think? That's a good one. They should have realized what they had done wrong, first of all. When we're confronted with someone's sin, and we go, you know what? I got that sin too. It should cause us to repent, absolutely. What else should they have done? Any guesses? You know, yeah. They should have helped him. They should have tried to help him, yes. Because think about it. I know they didn't have the New Testament at this point in time, but what did they have? They had the law given by God to Moses. And in the law of Moses, there was a specific instruction for this. It was called the guilt offering. It was mandated in Leviticus Leviticus 5 and 6. It says that when you've harmed someone through your actions or through your sins, or when you have sinned against God, there are certain sacrifices you're supposed to do. And it follows the, the sin offering but it was specifically for when you, your sin had caused someone else to have trouble or when you had sinned against God. And part of this was you offer the sacrifice, but then you were to go out, find the person that you had sinned against, and give them an extra 20% over what sort of damages you had caused them. So in this case, Judas had gotten 30 pieces of silver for betraying Christ. He should have offered the sacrifices, and then he should have taken that 30 pieces of silver added another 20%, which is six silvers. So given Jesus a total of 36 silvers and confessing, hey, I've sinned against you and I'm trying to make restitution to you. But the priests do none of this. Though going before God day in and day out to offer sacrifices, they cared only about the structure of religion. Those, those window dressings that spring up around genuine worship of God. 
They cared about the clothing. They cared about the pomp and circumstance, the ceremonies that they got to go through. They cared about the authority and prestige this position brought them, but they didn't care about obeying the commands of the God they claimed to serve. And I want you to note the mental gymnastics the Pharisees continue to display as they insist that they have not personally sinned. Notice how they recognize that betraying Jesus was sin. When Judas says, I've sinned against an innocent man, they don't say, no, you didn't. You did nothing wrong. They affirm, yes, you did. We just don't care that you did. And they further affirm that the money they paid to Judas was blood money. It was money given to him to betray someone innocent. But they claim that giving that money wasn't sinful. And don't we do this? Like, if we're being brutally honest with ourselves, don't we do this? We say, you know what? The thing I did, it's like two or three steps removed from actual sin. I mean, Jesus addresses this in the temple, on the, the Sermon on the Mount. When he gives the Beatitudes, the next thing he goes into was saying, you have heard it said, you shall not commit murder. But I say to you, anyone who gets angry in his heart against his brother is already guilty of murder. You have heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, anyone who looks at someone with lust in their heart has already committed adultery. We constantly try to excuse away what God views as sin and justify it as not really being sin. And until we die or Christ return, we will have to fight against the temptation to sin and justify it, even as Christians. The important thing is how you respond to that sin when God brings it to your attention. Will you feel regret and then change nothing so that you fall into that sin time and time again? Or will you genuinely repent of that sin and take steps to change the lifestyles so that you don't fall into that sin? Or will you be like the chief priests? We go, you know what? Not sin. I'm going to say right here, I don't feel remorse. I'm going to keep doing it. So the priest knew the money had no place being in the sanctuary of God. And after talking about it, they decided to buy a field where strangers could be buried. Now here in Matthew, this field is uh, described as being the potter's field. Understand that this isn't some guy named Potter who had a field and he sold it. This was probably like a common field that the potters of the city would go to. It was a nice place to get clay, and they would take their clay from it to make pots and other earthenware vessels. And for whatever reason, the owner of this field decides to sell it. Maybe the clay, the quality just dipped down. Maybe they used up all the clay. We don't know. But at this point in time, they were selling it. And Matthew describes the field as being bought by the priests. But in Acts, this field is being bought, or is described as being bought by Judas. What's going on here? Is the Bible conflicting itself? The easy one to answer here. Is the Bible conflicting no, it's not. Oh, good. I'm, I'm glad you guys are away. Thank you. Thank you. No, the answer is always no. Okay, guys, uh, if I give a large donation to someone and they say, oh, wow, that was, that was really nice. We're going to take this money and we're going to build a park bench. Now, would it be accurate to say that the organization I gave the money to bought the park bench? Yeah, they're the ones who went out and bought it or made it or did whatever with it. Absolutely, they bought it. 
Now, would there also be a little plaque there that says, you know, this park dedicated by Matthew Bennett, and people would say, oh, Matthew Bennett bought, bought this park bench. Would, would people do that? Yes, people do it all the time. Whenever we see something, we go, oh, look, that park bench, it was bought by so-and-so. So both of these things are true. Yes, I would have bought the park bench, but technically, the organization would have bought the park bench. And in the same way, even though the priests were the ones who specifically bought it, everyone recognized it was bought with the money they paid to Judas. And can I just as a side say that this is an amazing testimony to the sovereignty of God, that he used the betrayal of the Son of God as a means for public testimony in that region. And can you imagine what a slap in the face this must have been to every priest who was involved in this? That every time they heard the name of the field being the field of blood, they knew that everyone in Jerusalem knew that this field had been paid for by the priest using money they had paid to get an innocent man murdered. What they thought they were doing in secret in the dead of night, rushing Jesus off to his death before any of his supporters would even be awake, God brought to the light of day to bear testimony against them and to be a witness for his great plan of redemption. Well, so far, we've seen three different responses to sin, if you'll let me group Peter into this. We've seen how Peter was filled with remorse for sinning against Jesus, the Son of God, and it led him to repentance. We've seen how Judas was filled with remorse for sinning against Jesus, an innocent man, and it led him to suicide. And we've seen how the chief priests were completely apathetic to their sin as a premeditated and methodic, as they premeditated and methodically carried out their plan to murder Jesus, God's chosen representative. But what's the point? What's the point of this passage? When we come to the point here at the end of it, in the fourth section, God's divine meaning in verses 9 and 10. It says, Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, and they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now, on the surface, it seems like a pretty straightforward, right? Old Testament prophecy, New Testament, Jesus fulfilling it, or we see it fulfilled. Pretty straightforward. And yes, absolutely true. Uh, but there's more to it. And I need, I need someone to do me a favor at this point. Who here has the Bible that has cross-references in it? Anyone? Okay, I, I want you to look. Anyone who has it, look down real quick and tell me what passage is this being quoted from? from? Verses 9 and 10, it should have a little, little letter there. You go over to the column and it says, letter such and so, this Old Testament passage. What are we quoting from right now? Zechariah. Zechariah. Anyone, anyone have a cross-reference that says, that says something different? I know what you're thinking. Keep your hand down. <laughs> Ian, do you have something different? Or excuse me, Lane, you have something different? Oh, it says Luke. Okay, yeah, uh, parallel counts. That's fine. Anyone has something other than, than Zechariah? You're skipping ahead, I think. D- does yours actually say that? What, what translation are you using? You don't know? I'm curious because in every translation I looked, it quotes Zechariah. 
as the scripture being cited. So what's going on here? Uh, Matthew saying this was said by Jeremiah. Every cross-reference says this was Zechariah. That seems, that seems like a whoopsie right there, or maybe a mistranslation by, by one of the translators who are copying it. Uh, the answer is it's actually, this is so interesting. We don't have a lot of time to get into this, so I'm just going to do a very surface-level skimming of what an incredible thing he's doing here. Um, Zechariah is, is definitely what's being quoted here. Let me start by that. This, is, this comes from Zechariah uh, chapter... Uh, sorry, let me find it real quick. There we go. Uh, it's quoting Zechariah 11, verses 12 and 13. So in Zechariah chapter 11, God has instructed Zechariah to go and hire himself out as a shepherd. So he does this. He brings two staffs with him. There's, there's a lot of stuff going on here that we're not going to get into, but he works with them for a month. And at the end of the month, he is absolutely disgusted <laughs> with his fellow shepherds. Uh, and, you know, they, he takes one of his staffs and he, he breaks it. And when he breaks it, he had named the staff something specific. It's not important right now, guys. But when he breaks it, they go, oh, this is a prophet from God. And he says, I'm done with you guys. Pay me my wages, if you're willing to. If you're not willing to pay me my wages, whatever, I'm going to leave. But if you're willing to pay me, pay me my wages. So the shepherds talk together and they give him 30 pieces of silver. which is the amount of money Exodus 21.32 instructed a person to pay someone else if your bull got loose from its field and gored one of their slaves. You paid 30 pieces of silver. Now by giving Zechariah 30 pieces of silver, they were intentionally insulting him. This, this wasn't just like a, here's your money. They specifically chose an amount of money to be a slap in the face to him. Like it would have been less insulting if they paid him nothing. But by choosing 30 pieces of silver, the price of a dead slave, that was an insult. Like a, a living slave at least would have been 60 pieces of silver. So they're saying you're, you're, you're worth nothing except a dead slave killed by accident by a loose bull. And as a result, God says, Zechariah, take these insulting wages and throw it to the potter, which was one of the most humble professions there in the temple. And by doing so, God was actually tying Zechariah's actions back to Jeremiah, which happened first. It was uh, Jeremiah chapter 18 and 19 that God had Zechariah uh, imitating right here. And it's what happens that Jeremiah, now we're going further back in time, stay with me. God tells Jeremiah to go to the potter's house. And he observes the potter working the clay. And as he watches the potter work the clay, the potter messes up somehow. It gets ruined. He doesn't like it. And so the potter takes that clay and he turns it into a new vessel. And God says, can I not do the same with you, O Israel? As the author and creator, the sovereign king over everything, do I not, like the potter, have the ability to control everything I want? And if I don't like the way it's turning out, do I not have the ability to make something new out of it? And then in chapter 19, he instructs Jeremiah to bring together the elders of the people. He takes a clay pot and he throws it down and destroying it. Uh, and the point that he's making there is that because of the rejection of God and ignoring of his continual warnings, that, he is, that God is bringing death and destruction on Israel. So by referencing Jeremiah, but quoting Zechariah, 
God is having Matthew bring to the Jewish reader's mind these two linked events. And he's doing this to draw a greater understanding of what Judas's betrayal really meant. In the same way that the shepherds undervalued Zachariah's services and paid him an insulting wage, despite knowing that he was God's prophet, so also the chief priests and Judas infinitely undervalue the price of God himself, only being willing to pay the price of a gourd slave. And I want you to understand something here. We talk about 30 pieces of silver, and is silver kind of a precious metal? Yeah? So you kind of think that Judas maybe got a good amount of money here? He got 200 bucks, guys. Yeah, exactly. That was my, when I looked it up too, that was my face too. Judas betrayed God for 200 bucks. So Matthew is saying, I want you to realize how grossly undervalued the chief priests and Judas had valued Jesus at. And I want you to consider how much do you personally value Christ. And that's actually going to be the first application this morning. How much do you personally value Christ? When push comes to shove, do you love other things in this world more than Christ? Do you love money more than Christ? Do you love being popular more than Christ? Do you hide away the fact that you're a Christian so that when you're with your friends, you can watch the movies they watch? You can make the jokes they make? You can talk the way they talk? Do you value things more than Christ? Or do you value Christ above all else? Mark 8.36 asks this very question. Jesus said, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Judas was willing to do it for 200 bucks. He didn't even get the whole world, guys. He didn't even get a day's wages. And yet he still betrayed Christ for it. Our second point of application is, have you repented of your sins, or are you only remorseful? I know that week after week, I ask you this question. Every time I'm up here, I ask you this question. The leaders ask you this question nonstop too. And the reason we do this is this, there's absolutely nothing in this world as important as the answer to this question, guys. If you have not repented of your sins, you will stand before an almighty God who is perfectly just. And he and his justice will send you to hell for all eternity. It is not enough to feel bad about your sin. Judas felt bad about his sin. You have to repent and turn to Christ as the only one who can save you. Let's pray, guys. Dear God, we are sinners before you, one and all. We have taken the countless graces you have poured out on us through creation and taken them to worship ourselves and the things we lust after instead of worshiping you. Each one of us has hopelessly, hopelessly undervalued your great name betraying the one who holds our lives in his hands for cheap, perishable junk. Oh God, have mercy on us for sinning against you and our weaknesses. I pray that everyone here today who does not know you would see your gift of life for the priceless treasure that it is and abandon all the things they once held dear to to hold fast to that treasure.
And I pray for those that are here who do know you, that they would learn from Peter and Judas' examples, that we would not merely regret our sins and be remorseful, but we would repent, that we would take off those old habits that ensnare our hearts, renew our minds to the reading of your word, and put on the new self. Father, we love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.